Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blue South. For today's podcast episode, we're going to review the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, some of the background and historical knowledge behind it, and how it affects us in our modern sense of the world today. Right before jumping in, we'd like to remind you that all of our podcast material is found on Spotify as well as video formats on YouTube as well. So just keep your eyes peeled for anything and everything related to our content. Make sure to go on our Instagram at the Blue South to follow us for updates and effects for our podcast. Awesome. And without further ado, let's get into the episode for today. Peyton, start us off. Thank you, Daniel. Before we can truly understand how Israeli and Palestinian conflict has further tumbled down to what the core fundamentals of it is today, we really have to rewind and go back to how it was. So just some background knowledge for that. Before there was an Israel, before there really was like a Palestine, you have during the Ottoman Empire, there was a council of Jewish leaders who decided that there needed to be a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And after World War I, the British and Allied governments decided to support that and say, hey, we will support you guys having a uh, national government for the Jews in Palestine. They issued the Balfour Declaration, which officially put their words behind the Grand Zionist organization, right? And the way, the way they experimented with this idea was they established the British Mandatory Palestine. And now this was basically not really a colony, but it was a administration that was governed by the British for the Palestinians, Jews, and Muslims, and all these groups. Now, in, in the core fundamentals of it, it acted as a way to keep all three main Asian religions, Christianity, um, Islam, as equal. They had religious leaders representing each side, freedom of religion for each side. And for a long period of time, this actually worked to help things cool. But starting in the 1930s and late 1940s, Arab and Jewish nationalism within Palestine started to ferment up just because of their lack of representation within their own independent nation. Now, after the World War II, and because of the implications of the Holocaust and everything that it caused, the Grand Zionist Council, Grand Zionist Council decided to, instead of establishing a group where the Jews can live, they decided they're going to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And in 1948, they established the state of Israel and declared independence from mandatory Palestine, which effectively just destroyed mandatory Palestine, making it no longer a state. Now, you see, the Declaration of Israeli Independence was not well seen in the Middle East, to say the least. The Arab League, which was a coalition of Arab states, Syria, Iraq, all these Arab countries surrounding Israel, decided that with this Israeli independence that they're going to invade. Now, the this war, 1948 War of Israeli Independence, is probably where you can trace most of these problems coming from. Because you see, with the mandatory Palestine being destroyed, the Israelis occupied most of it. But other parts of it were occupied by Jordan and Egypt and Syria. And Israel in this war drove them out. And then, but in some parts, they couldn't even drive all of them out. For example, Israel occupied around 78% of mandatory Palestine, which was around 20% more than the United Nations even allowed them to. So they were technically breaking international law. Egypt annexed or occupied the uh, Gaza Bank and Jordan occupied the West Bank. Now you see another great implication, not great, but an implication from this is that there was a great, great Palestinian catastrophe is what it's commonly referred to. There's another term for it that I don't exactly know how to pronounce, which I'm not going to try and say it, but it was a term where 800, over 800,000 Palestinians were driven out of their homes in Israel and driven to Gaza, the West Bank, just out of their homes and out of Israel into the lands given to them by the United Nations for Palestine. 
And even today, people still cite it and remember as one of the leading causes of how, how dare Israel do that to us. We hate Israel, you know. And then after this, Israel kind of coexisted inside the Arab world, but very distrustfully. They had no international relations with a lot of countries except for in the West. And for around 10 years, this was all right. But then in about early 1950s, there was the early to late 1950s, there was six day war in which further again, the Arab League and all the surrounding Arab countries decided to launch another invasion against Israel. And once again, Israel just destroyed them. They did, they accomplished all the tasks in the war. They further occupied even more things, which brought more keen alertness onto the Palestinians because you see the Palestinians had established their own national government within Gaza. And during this, the Palestinians, their government was wiped out by the Israelis because when they occupied, um, I think it was, the, yeah, Gaza, they just destroyed them. They just said, hey, your government doesn't exist anymore. And even though they were later forced to withdraw from Gaza and the West Bank, it, would, it really showed that Israel was there to stay and it really formatted them as a nation. Now, another thing that you can really see is that during the 1960s, 1970s, it, the Palestinians really started to make a mark on how they decided to win their independence. Before this, it was more or less trying to appeal to foreign powers, protesting in this. And now it turned to we're going to form organizations and help fight against Israel to take back our homeland. So one, so one of the major organizations that we can trace back to this is the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization which was headquartered in Jordan. Now it was originally founded as basically an, a paramilitary group, which that was founded to fight against Israel and try and liberate and protect Palestinians in the occupied territories. But very soon they occupied into a very different kind of group. You see, the Palestinians, after they fled from Israel, they migrated en masse to not only Palestine and the occupied territories, but also to Jordan and basically caused a civil war between the people of Jordan and the Palestinians. And after the civil war ended, the Jordanians were like, hey, you need to leave. And then they left the PLO, they left and they went to Lebanon. And Lebanon, they did almost the exact same thing, which is why a majority of the countries nowadays distrust the PLO and, and at least the setting of setting up within their country. Because they'll support them, but they say, hey, don't come here. We don't want another repeat. So in Lebanon, they started another civil war between Palestinians, Christians, all sorts of groups. But this time, since Lebanon is right on the northern border with Israel, Lebanon, Israel led a military force into Lebanon and basically occupied all of a sudden Lebanon, targeted PLO groups, and just did a lot of things to just Palestinians in the area, which are still felt by many of them in Palestine today. Now, after this, in Lebanon, after they were defeated, they retreated to a very remote country, Tunisia, in which their, their influence in the whole Palestinian effort was very small after this. Now, around the time they were defeated, the, let me think of the name, Hamas, yes, Hamas is a, was a political organization that was founded by former members of the PLO in basically the same exact mission, except that this time they were, for, they were first formatted as more of a political group and more of a Islamic fundamentalist group rather than a pan-Palestinian group. Now they, fun, fun, they um, operate in mostly in the Gaza Strip nowadays. The Gaza Strip is basically their power base and where they act as the de jure and de facto government because 
relatively recently, Palestine, relatively recently as in around 2004, 2003, Israel and Palestine tried to broker a, a peace agreement between each other. And it was going quite well. And then Hamas had an, we had an election in Gaza and Hamas won. And right after Hamas won, Israel said, hey, we're going to give you the list of demands. You have to establish us as an official like country. You need to recognize us. No more terrorist bombings. No more attacking our people. And we won't do the same to you. And Hamas just said no. And even then, you can see there's justifications for each side. Because well, while the Israelis do have a point, hey, you need to recognize us and stop doing attacks. The Israelis also need to see that, hey, some of those attacks are justified because you are sending settlers into their lands and responding with their own missile attacks. And that just really complicates things nowadays because what transformed firstly as just a national struggle between country and country has now formed into something completely gray. There's no black and white anymore. And it's hard to tell which side is on the right. Do you have any thoughts on that, Daniel? Yeah, for sure. And I know that you mentioned, uh, and specifically, you don't know which side is right. And I 100% agree with that. I think that's the biggest uh, piece within this conflict that all of us are trying to figure out. And that is who is in the right and who is in the wrong. Um, there isn't really a right or wrong answer to that question, just because we've seen that both sides have done insurmountable damage to the other. Both sides have entered in, uh, tried you know, p negotiating peace treaties. And you can see those happening all the way from the beginning, from the end of the 90s, all the way up to now, um, and even in, during the Trump era. And so uh, we're always trying to find, you know, you know, who bombed this person or how many casualties are on one side. But for instance, I mean, these kinds of statistics are insurmountable. For instance, I could say uh, we've got more Palestinians dying of rocket strikes than uh, Israelis. Okay, well, at the exact same time, we can also see that Palestinians are bombing Israelis more. However, Israelis have one of the best aerial defense systems in the world, the Iron Dome. So it, it's just it kind of goes both ways. And there is no way to justify Victor, because at the end of the day, if you have to launch rockets in order to prove your point, are you really the good guy in any situation? Um, and so it just kind of paints a picture for how drastic the situation has become as well as you know what we're trying to do to further lessen it. So I know I mentioned the peace treaties within you know Palestine, Israel. Did you have any particular pieces, uh, Peyton, in regards to what we're trying to do now and what the plan is kind of moving forward? Mm -hmm. I, I think an interesting point is that we really have to learn that Palestine and Israel don't have one voice. Because you see, there's many, been many different attempts to negotiate a peace between all sides. And even if they do agree on a peace, there's always going to be parts of that faction or a group within that party who just say, hey, I don't like this. For example, I know when the Camp David and the Oslo Accords were signed, for, for a long time, there was hope during the Clinton administration saying, hey, you know, we've finally brought peace to Palestine and Israel. Within months, it was collapsing just because in for the Palestinians, the Islamic fundamentalists within their group hated the peace treaty. Between the Israeli group, there was the um, Jewish nationalists who thought, hey, how dare we can, how dare they make us give up this territory or how dare they make us concede to them. And I know a particular example of this is I know, I don't know his exact name, but I know there was one um, Israeli prime minister who I think you're in the late 70s or 80s who brokered a peace between Israel and Palestine and within, within he was assassinated 
by a fellow um, Israeli just because he felt that Israel shouldn't have made an agreement with the Palestinians. And I think that you really have to look at it as in both sides are clamoring for peace, yes, but they really represent their own national interests. It's not just, hey, I want peace no matter what. It's just that they, they want some things and they're not going to get peace unless they get those things. And it's just really hard to see as one being right or one being bad if they say we're going to stay at war unless you give us our things we want. And honestly, it's sad to see. So I know you mentioned about conceding. One side's going to have to concede uh, and give territory to the other. I know, for instance, it's probably going to be looking like more the Israelis are going to have to concede some of this territory that as they were fighting up slowly and taking more and more territory, they're definitely going to have to concede that. Um, However, at the exact same time, uh, there have been plans to produce a two-state solution within Israel and Palestine, and Palestinians aren't really liking that. And there has to be conceding over on both sides uh, to make a truly peaceful agreement that both people are going to actually enjoy. Um, But yeah, I guess that pretty much sums it up for today. I thank you guys so much for listening. Um, My name is Daniel. I'm Peyton. And this has been The Blue South. Thank you guys so much for listening. The Blue South is made possible by David Vandelay, who created our theme. And also by the graphic designer who rebranded our logo. You can find him on Instagram at Gustavinsky8. And of course, special thanks to all of our listeners and Instagram followers. You are what keeps The Blue South going.